Today's reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It should be on page 3 in the Pew Bible. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And this is after God created all the animals on earth. Then God said, Let us make men in our image, that is, humankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the move on the ground everything that has the breath of life in it i give every green plant for food and it was so god saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day order the lord are you guys familiar with the phrase every square inch it is a reference to uh, the famous speech by Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was a seminal theologian and one-time Dutch prime minister. In 1880, he started the, or he founded the Free University of Amsterdam. And during his opening ceremony speech, he said, "There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine." Kuiper was casting a vision for Christians, how they should live in light of Christ's supreme and absolute sovereignty. Since every square inch already belonged to Christ, he didn't see the need for Christians to conquer and reclaim anything. Instead, the Dutch prime minister wanted to see Christians coexisting with non-Christians and work with them in harmony. He hoped that in doing so, Christians would display the distinctiveness of life under God's rule. So he urged all Christians to be Jesus' witnesses in every square inch of God's cosmos and to show the fullness of life that God God had intended for humanity. However, when I was first introduced to that phrase, I was taught a very different version. My pastor at the time was talking about the culture war in America and what his church was going to do about it. In that context, the pastor said, there is this phrase, phrase every square inch, and it means that it is our job to claim and conquer every square inch of this world for the glory of God. Although I didn't know at the time, the pastor had completely taken the quote out of its context. Kuiper said that every square inch already belonged to God, and the pastor said we needed to, Christians needed to reclaim and conquer every square inch for God's glory. 
I'm not sure if there was, a, uh, if there was an intentional misuse or just simple misunderstanding. Whatever the case may be, the pastor then started connecting his version of every square inch to the cultural mandate that we see in Genesis 1.28, the idea that Christians are supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. In the context of the culture war, he argued that Christians had a duty to fight, conquer, and triumph over the secular culture to reestablish God's creation order. And without any context, such a militant attitude toward the culture war seems warranted. I mean, after all, Genesis 1.28 does tell us to subdue the earth. The word subdued in English, in English always carries this element of force, right? But we also know that the meaning and use of a word, any word, are determined by its context. And when we consider the context of the cultural mandate, we realize a few things. First, it's part of God's creation in Genesis 1. Two, it's day six, and God is in the middle of creating humankind. And last but not least, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28 describes the humankind's unique function within God's cosmos. Two weeks ago, we saw that in the beginning, God created not just material things, but he also gave each material thing its unique function. For instance, on day one, God spoke light into existence and gave the light its unique function to be a period of light called day. In the same vein, on day six, God created human beings in his own image so that they might fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, the image of God and the cultural mandate go hand in hand. We cannot understand our unique life-supporting function without first understanding the image of God. So what do we mean by God's image? When we look at the Hebrew word for image and how it's used elsewhere in the Bible, we realize that it means a representative figure, like an idol or a statue. For example, the kings of Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia all call themselves the image of their deity. They claim that they, they were the embodiment of the divine, and that their rule and reign reflected the will and characteristics of their gods. Of course, Genesis does not go that far, but it does tell us that God created men and women in his image to be his representatives. By multiplying and increasing in number, humankind was supposed to fill the earth with God's image, to represent him and to communicate his creation order. The goal of any culture is to cultivate an environment suitable for the growth and flourishing of life. And in his creation, God cultivated such an environment. But as we were reminded this morning in the service of confession, Adam and Eve were willful. They wanted to cultivate their own environment. And they wanted to do this by becoming the ones with the power to define what was good and evil. And you know the story. So they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Consequently, sin entered the world, and the image of God in humanity was severely distorted. Everyone still carries the image of God. Therefore, everyone inherently has these human values, undeniable human values and dignity. Therefore, the abolitionists were absolutely right in arguing that the black slaves were no less valuable than any other human beings out there, that they were also human beings, period, because they too were created in the image of God. But at the same time, the image that we carry is a broken one. So when we encounter statements like, since I'm created in the image of God, how I identify is perfectly valid and must be accepted, those statements are flawed. We all carry a broken image. Everyone, including Christians, falls short of the glory of God. And that has an important implication because we all carry a broken image, our ability to cultivate a life-supporting environment is also broken. If we are to fulfill the cultural mandate, then we need to first go back to the Bible and see what God is like. In Exodus and thereafter, God describes himself as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, the question is, do the words and actions of Christians today match this image of God? What does the world see in us? What does the world see when Christians use violence and intimidation at an abortion clinic? What does the world see when Christian students bully a gay student? What does the world see when Christians post nasty comments and share sensationalized articles on social media? What does the world see in us? What kind of image are we painting with our words and actions? Today, the basis of Christian engagement in the culture war is this idea called cultural mandate. Christians who fight this war claim that they are simply representing God, that they are trying to reestablish God's creation order by subduing the secular culture and its ideologies. And they wholeheartedly believe that they are fighting a good fight for the Lord. Unfortunately, however, in their conviction, they often forget about the interdependence between the interdependence of the image of God and the cultural mandate. To represent God is to bear His image. And it's not just those Christians. We're also just as susceptible. Even when we try to paint the image of God, since we've only had a broken one, we don't know how to paint that image. So we need to look elsewhere to find the perfect and pure image of God. Fortunately for us, we don't have to try too hard because the Bible directs us to Jesus Christ. For instance, Hebrew 1.3 calls Jesus the exact representation of God. Paul in Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's why John claims in his gospel that whoever has seen God 
No, whoever has seen Jesus, excuse me, has seen God. Jesus is not created in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God because he is God. In other words, Jesus is the full revelation of God. And only by imitating him, we can represent God, communicate his creation order, and fulfill our human function as described in the cultural mandate. A quick sidebar before we go any farther. People, some Christians, point to Jesus overturning tables at the temple and argue that Jesus occasionally used violence for good causes, therefore Christians should as well. We should not see it that way uh, for several reasons, but for now, let me just say that Jesus wasn't violent at the temple. He was angry. What we see in Jesus at the temple is not violence, but his righteous anger at the violence that the merchants had already done to God's temple. Jesus never committed any violence, but he was, on the, he was often on the receiving end of violence. And Jesus suffered. He is the suffering servant. The perfect image of God emptied himself. He took the likeness of humankind to suffer with humanity and to suffer for humanity. To be compassionate means we suffer together. Notice how God describes himself in Genesis or Exodus. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The first adjective that God uses is what? It's compassionate. And Jesus perfectly demonstrated that compassion on his cross where he suffered and died for the sins of humanity. Therefore, to bear the image of God is to be compassionate because the perfect image, that's Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God was compassionate. But in Christian engagement with the culture war, compassion is often replaced by aggression and hostility. Even the term culture war denotes this militant attitude, something that we don't see in Jesus Christ. Compassion is a lost art today because we are not willing to suffer with other people. We don't want to suffer with others. We want to avoid suffering as much as possible. Even when our loved ones suffer, we still want to run away. I mean, if that's the case, how are we ever going to suffer with those we disagree with? How are we ever going to show compassion to those who do not uphold God's creation order? Perhaps we have an incomplete understanding of what it means to be compassionate, what it means to suffer with those who are suffering. Maybe we think that we should suffer for them, to take their pain away by taking on their pain. I mean, that would be ideal. That would show how Jesus suffered on our behalf. But suffering together doesn't always have to be that grandiose. It can be as little as just being present with them in their suffering. I mean, look at Jesus. He was often with the sick, outcasts, tax collectors, sinners. When no one else would, Jesus was present with them in their suffering 
and his compassion changed them. Compassion is a force. The power of compassion has has the ability to change people's hearts, minds, and lives. And Jesus often used the power of his compassion to connect with people, to take care of the marginalized, the lost, the needy, and the poor, to find the lost and bring them back home. And the power of his compassion was most vividly displayed on the cross where he suffered and died for us. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of compassion put an end to the power of sin and death. One might say that Jesus subdued the broken world with his compassion. And you and I are here today because the same compassion, the same power have changed us forever. But did Jesus suffer on our behalf because he condoned the ways that we were living our lives? No. Jesus suffered on our behalf precisely. He died for us precisely because he opposed our ways. And to be God's image bearers, we need to imitate this compassion of Jesus Christ and suffer with others as Jesus suffered with us and for us. To engage the secular culture in a hostile and aggressive manner is to forsake our role as God's image bearers. We need to start painting a more accurate image of God. We need to show compassion to those around us, especially those we disagree with. Then and only then we can fulfill the cultural mandate as God's representatives. Compassion begins when we start making time to be with other people, whether they are rebelling teenagers or controlling parents, pro-life, pro-LGBTQ, pro-choice, supportive of a different political party or candidate. We should listen to their stories instead of immediately condemning and judging their practices and beliefs. We should also stay away from trivializing their human experiences. We don't have to understand them. We don't have to agree with them. But when we see people wrestling with gender dysphoria, when we see people suffering from the fear and anxiety of having to raise an unwanted child, we can validate their human experiences and just be with them in their suffering. None of these things means that we condone them or their unbiblical practices. It simply means that we're trying to better represent our God by practicing Christ-like compassion as we engage with the world. Compassion, in a way, is the greatest evangelistic tool that we have because it is so countercultural to our culture today. It is so countercultural to the cancel culture and the outrage culture of the day. While the secular culture seeks to demonize others with different views and practices, compassion sees them as fellow human beings created in the image of God. It seeks genuine relationship and it builds bridges 
It offers an alternative way of life, a life that is flourishing under God's rule. At the same time, we must realize that our compassion can only go so far. As we suffer with others, we will inevitably feel like our compassion just isn't enough. But we know someone whose compassion is a powerful force. His compassion subdued the power of sin and death. He suffered with humanity, and he suffered for humanity. Our compassion should always point to the ultimate compassion, the compassion of Jesus Christ. Greg Beale and other scholars point out the strong connection between the cultural mandate in Genesis and the Great Commission in the New Testament. God made humankind in his image for the cultural mandate, to fill the earth and subdue it. But we no longer have to subdue the earth because Jesus Christ has subdued the entire cosmos. Every square inch already belongs to him. All there's left for us to do now is fill the earth with God's image. And that's the Great Commission. Jesus sends us and other Christians to the ends of the earth to be his witnesses, to represent him. He commands us to fill every square inch of God's cosmos with his image so that people will know him and his good news. And what's the good news to the world suffering from sin and death? It's the fact that Jesus, God the Son, subdued the power of sin and death with his compassion. Our Christ-like compassion is the image of God that this world needs to see. Our compassion is how we represent God as his image bearers. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the compassion of Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us. Whenever we see the world actively rebelling against you or walking away from your creation order, remind us of Jesus' compassion so that we may engage with the world in a more Christ-like way. Remove our aggression and hostility and fill us with your compassion so that we may represent you more faithfully as long as we may live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.